stories to you. Hello, my name is Magdalena Ball, and it is a pleasure to be hosting this conversation with Maria Devana Headley as part of the Newcastle Writers' Festival's Story to You series in 2021. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which I live and work, the Awabakal people, and to pay my respect to elders past and present with a particular welcome to all Aboriginal people listening to this conversation. I'd also like to thank you listeners for your ongoing support of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. And um, I'd like to introduce Maria. So Maria Devana Headley is the best-selling author of eight books, including The Mere Wife, a contemporary adaptation of Beowulf, and this fabulous, fabulous, brand new translation of Beowulf published in Australia this year by Scribe. Um, she's written for both teenagers, um, including books, Magonia, uh, sorry, Magonia and Airy, um, which were published by HarperCollins and for adults in a variety of genres and forms. Um, Headley's short fiction has been shortlisted for the Nebula, the Shirley Jackson, Tiptree and World Fantasy Awards. I could go on. Um, and she's been anthologized in many years bests. And right now a collection is under contract to FSG. So um, her essays on gender, chronic illness, politics, propaganda, and mythology have been published and covered in the New York Times, the Daily Beast, Harvard's Neiman Storyboard, and elsewhere. And she's also taught writing in the master's program at Sarah Lawrence and delivered master classes and writing lectures at Dartmouth, Northwestern, Wesleyan, Nebraska, and Newman University, among many others. Maria, I'm so excited and delighted to be chatting to you today. Welcome. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited the book is finally out in Australia. <laughs> I've been waiting and waiting. Absolute joy. So before we begin, just to give listeners a flavor, um, could I please ask you to read just a little bit from your new translation of Beowulf? I'm going to hold this up at yes. least seven times. I think that's the deal. <laughs> I'm going to read the very beginning of this um, just for a few minutes and give you a sense of, most people say that that by the first page, you definitely know whether or not you're going to like this translation of Beowulf, and that's true because it's um, it, by, the I did it a, by the first word. I did it in a very particular voice, <laughs> and it's um, some people love it and some people don't, but it's um, it's definitely distinct. Um, okay, bro, tell me we still know how to speak of pain. In the old days, everyone knew what men were, brave, bold, glory-bound. Only stories now, but I'll sound the spear Dane's song, hoarded for hungry times. Their first father was a foundling, shield-shaping. He spent his youth fists up, browbeating every barstool brother, bonfiring his enemies. That man began in the waves, a baby in a basket, but he bootstrapped his way into a kingdom, trading loneliness for luxury. Whether they thought kneeling necessary or no, everyone from head to tail of the railroad bent down. There's a king, there's his crown. That was a good thing. Later, God sent Shield a son, a wolf cub, further proof of manhood. Being God, he knew how the spear Danes had suffered, the misery they'd mangled through, leaderless, long years of loss. So the life lord, that almighty big boss, birthed them an earth shape. Theo's name kissed legions of lips by the time he was half grown, but his own father was still breathing. We all know a boy can't daddy until his daddy's dead. A smart son gives gifts 
to his father's friends in peacetime. When war woos him, as war will, he'll need those troops to follow the leader. Privilege is the way men prime power the world over. Shield was iron until the end. When he died, his warriors executed his final orders. They swaddled their king of rings and did just as the Dane had demanded back when mind and meter could merge in his mouth. They bore him to the harbor and into the bosom of a ship that father they followed that man they adored. She was anchored and eager to embark, an ice maiden built to bear the weight of a prince. They laid him by the mast, packed tight in his treasure trove, bright swords, war weeds, his lap holding a horde of blood tides, each fair coin placed by a loyal man. You paint the piper called the tomb. The shroud shone, ringed in runes, sun stitched. I've never heard of any ship so heavy nor a corpse so rich. Shield came into the world unfavored. His men waited him as well as the strangers had who'd once warped him to the waves wet. Even ghosts must be fitted to fight. The war band flew a golden flag over their main man. The salt sea saluted him, so too the storms and shield soldiers got drunk instead of crying. They mourned the way men do. No man knows, not me, not you, who hauled shield toward to shore, but the poor are plentiful, and somebody got lucky. Finally, Bea rolled into righteous rule, daddying for decades after his own daddy died. At last, though, it was his turn for erasure. His son, the half-dane, ran roughshod, smothering his father's story with his own. He rose in the realm and became a famous warlord, fighting ferociously, dawn to dusk, fathering his own horde of war. Heirs marching into the world in this order, Durogar, Hrothgar, Halga, and I heard he hand-clasped his daughter, her name's a blur, to Odala. Tender she rendered that battle sweet, happy in fucking, where before he'd only been happy in fighting. War was the wife Hrothgar went, went first. Battles won, treasures taken. Admirers and kin heard of his fight fortune and flanked him in force. Strong boys grow into stronger men, and when Hrothgar had an army, his hopes turned to a hall to home them, a house to espouse his faithful. More than just a mead hall, a world's wonder, eight and seven. When it was done, he swore he'd load light and unhand everything he'd won, worn, and owned, passed to his posse all God's gifts, save lives and land. He'd keep the kingdom, of course. He gave far-reaching orders, carpets, carpentry, walls, and gables, tables for seating a clan, rare gifts plated like rare meat for all his men. So it rose, a greater hall than any other. Rothgar filled it blood brother by blood brother and named it Europe. His words were heard and heralded, and yes, yes, bro, the man was more than just talk. He gave good gifts. His war-wedded wore king's rings and drank their leader's meat. Nightly, he fed his fight family with fortunes. The hall loomed, golden towers antler tipped. It was asking for burning, but that hadn't happened yet. You know how it is. Every castle wants invading, and every family has enemies born within it. Old grudges recredesce. Speaking of grudges, out there in the dark, one waited. He listened, holding himself hard to home. But he'd been lonely too long, brotherless, sludge-stranded. Now he heard and endured the din of drinkers. Their poetry poisoned his peace. 
Every night, turmoil, raucous laughter from Durant, howling of hearts, squawking of Scots, men recounting the history of men like them. The Almighty made earth for us, they sang, sun and moon for our delight, fens full of creatures for our feasting, mirrors to quench our thirst. Spirits hull dwellers caroused by candlelight, stumbling to sleep with the sunrise, replete, lambs bleating comfort, ease pleased, until the night wakefulness moved their watcher to rest. Mm. Thank you so much. I, I got the sense when I was reading it and listening to it before this particular reading, um, the same sense, but we really drew up drew out today in this reading, this sense of engagement with the reader. I really felt, even as I listened to you now and was trying to keep my head really still, <laughs> that I, I was being drawn into, you know, nodding and going, mm. you know, I, I really felt that you were in your reading and in your translation, that there was a, a, a very strong sense of, of listening um, engagement from the reader's point of view. We're part of the story. Good, good. I, I, I made it so it would feel that way. And I, I'm glad it does. Yeah. I mean, of course, in your reading, you know, you, you reached out, um, you used the full body to do it, which is, is marvelous. And it, it does, but it does read that way on the page too. And that is something that I think, I think it kind of um, differentiates one of the many things that differentiates your translation from at least the, the one that I had when I was at, <laughs> at college. And uh, the one that I think um, a lot of people of many different ones that people have encountered over the years, that there is very much a casualness about it. Yeah, I mean the tone of this um, of this translation on purpose. Obviously, I did. I did a very. I, I really thought about the voice of the poet and the voice mm -hmm. of the person doing the storytelling, um, which is a distinctive voice, but it's not always pressed on in translation. Sometimes people are like, "This voice changes all the time," because it does. Because characters within the poem are talking, and there are little story within a story sections that happen. But I. Um, I really wanted to keep a consistent storytelling voice so that the poem, which is, you know, obviously it's an epic, <laughs> it's big. I wanted it to feel all of a piece so that we really felt like as we were coming through that we were, we were still with someone that we trusted as a storyteller and we understood the POV that storyteller had. Yes. The storyteller is, is of course a character and, and not necessarily a character who is speaking objectively, which is quite fun yeah. too. And, and not necessarily somebody whose views we, we will necessarily agree with as the story goes on as well, because there, you know, there's, there are things that I'm, I'm going to say he says in, in the translation that are, you know, that are, that are a little bit, you know, bumpkin-y, if you like. Yes, it's true. I mean, one of the things that people talk about when they translate this poem is that the, um, the storyteller kind of jumps around in time and space over the course of the poem. And periodically he'll be telling a story about something that happened hundreds of years ago, which is what we just heard, for yeah. example. Um, and then he'll be like, I was there. <laughs> and you're like, oh, well, you know, were you there? This is some old history that you were not present for, but you just decided to make yourself a witness at the table or you're at Shields funeral or you're, you know, which is, um, which is an interesting thing. I mean, it's an, it's an interesting aberration in the poem and I just kind of leaned into it. I, 
I, every time I saw any evidence of something like that, when the, when the poet is like, I was there, I was there, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm just going to have you do that. In, and that's part of why I put it in this register of the kind of bro story, because there, there's a certain kind of storytelling where we're like, oh, I saw it, I saw it with my own eyes. It's kind of a tall tale storytelling register that is also part of, um, of bro telling. So I, I did it in that register in order to like lean on those traditions as well. Absolutely. And that gives it a, a, a real sense of realism because, you know, we all know people who've told us stories like that. <laughs> maybe not Beowulf, but nevertheless, you know, maybe not the same kind of gruesomeness. Um, but can we talk a little about couple, a couple of the themes that your translation particularly brought out? Um, did you go in knowing, I know that you've, you've worked with Beowulf, uh, Beowulf before and the Mere Wife, but did you go into this particular translation knowing that you were going to tease out, for example, um, this wry exploration of privilege, which is, you know, very, very much a modern um, issue for us. Um, well, I, when I worked on The Mere Wife, I mean, The Mere Wife is a novel that's from the points of view of the female characters in Beowulf, and it's really adapted into the contemporary moment. It's present-day America. Um, so I was looking... I mean, feminist take on Beowulf all day long. That's what that book was. Mm. Um, this one is is been billed as a feminist translation of Beowulf, which it is, because I paid a lot of attention to the gender relationships and the women's relationships with the story. Mm. But I also was really interested in um, in coming into this and and really really looking at the poem as it is, like looking at it line by line. So this is a line by line translation. And, and the thing that really stood out to me in the poem, which I didn't entirely know, I mean, The Mere Wife is about privilege and it's about power relationships, but I didn't really know how much people in the Beowulf poem would be talking about their, their trouble with, with status. Um, and they are, like kings are saying, I, I don't know if I got it right. I tried, here's what I learned. Beowulf, I'll pass this down to you and try to advise you. And then that king gets we learn gets killed. You know, we we learn that he's made bad decisions, and his bad decisions have have caused the demise of his kingdom. I mean, that's Hrothgar. Towards the end of the poem, we learn that, and we're like, "Oh my God, we were just at Hrothgar's court. Beowulf was defending it. He, we thought we had it solid and saved, and it wasn't saved." So we, so I think a, a contemporary analysis of privilege and of the ability to rise through status games and through monster slaying. Um, it was definitely my aim here. I was interested in looking at, I was interested in looking at the ways this book has, this poem has impacted our culture, but I was also interested in the things that are sort of weirdly integral culturally because of patriarchy. <laughs> and this is a poem that's about male relationships. A lot of the poem is about daddy. And so I use daddy in the poem because I was like, okay, let's talk about about paternal relationships in the way that um, control of a, of a whole society is based on the paternal relationship, which we still have it. It's We're still here in a patriarchal society. So it can give us a lens to look at that. And a col colonialization as well, which is, you know, to me, that was a, a I just, it was kind of mind blowing um, to read that in Beowulf, having not, you know, again, having read Beowulf all those years ago and thinking it was a story about a horrible monster, which of course it is, you know, eating people is, is terrifying. And, uh, you know, Grendel is certainly um, no charmer, let's say, <laughs> but 
to recast that and to actually go, wait a minute, you know, maybe Hrothgar Castle doesn't have a right to be there. Maybe the anger stems from, you know, this deep-seated sense of we were here first and, you know, who are you to come and throw all this gold around and because you have it, you know, do what you've done. Yeah, that and that's... That was something that I really wanted to point at in this translation because it's um, because that's what I've always thought about. I've always been like, uh, what ha what happened here? Like this hall gets built and it's it's a lot of building, but Grendel's mother is already there. She's been there for a long time. She's been there for fifty years, and Grendel has been there too, apparently. And who knows how old Grendel is, but he's been there. So this is land that has been on by people who do not own the land. They just came in and said, look at this lovely land, I'm going to have it, which we certainly know a lot about that <laughs> at this point in the history of the world. That's happened over and over and over again. And in terms of the culture that this is coming from, um, you know, there there is plenty of history of indigenous peoples being trampled by incoming colonialist peoples. So that's we don't know who the models for this are because we don't know anything about where this poem came from or how this poem came in, came to being um and how the story that became this poem came into being but we are but but you know i mean the history of the world is diverse and lots of that history has been erased and so the things that we don't know about we can't just assume that they're completely made up out of nothing i think that the things we don't have the historical background from we should assume that the world is diverse and there's and, and there have been stories made up about all kinds of people. And monster stories are one of the really problematic ways that we've dealt with differences. <laughs> yes, you've, you've said the hero monster society is not a generous society. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess that's black and white thinking. Um, but it, it's, you know, it's also fascinating to think about those broader implications. And that, again, is, is beautifully, um, I'm going to hold it up for a second again, it's beautifully brought out in the book. Um, this notion that, um, you know, the bombast um, can undermine the, this um, binary as well and force us to rethink about it and, uh, you know, how it works and who's a monster and who's the villain. Mm -hmm. Especially Grendel's mother, because, you know, okay, Grendel eats people, but Grendel's mother, you know, uh, if there's something quite marvelous. And again, you know, I know you came from, from her point of view was kind of your, I guess it was your wormhole in, if you like, to that past. It's a way that connects you with her in many ways, connects all of us, um, certainly connects all of us who, who are mothers, <laughs> when we can imagine, very clearly imagine what that grief must have felt like. But also there's a kind of marvelous um, feminine power that she has in her lair when we, you know, or mirror, I should say, not her lair, um, when we go in there. It's beautiful. <laughs> It's exquisite, you know, these monsters, these sea monsters that she commands are exquisite. Yeah, she's, I mean, she's a really interesting character. One of the things that I think is most interesting about her is that, and this is, again, this is part of what caused me to write this, but the idea that Beowulf is about 18 years old, he's a kid, he's, we know that about him. And he comes in and he's a young hero and, uh, or a young warrior really. And Grendel's mother has been queen for 50 years. We get that information from the poem, which means that she is an old woman. She is not, she's, she's probably 70 or so um, or older. And Beowulf fights her and almost loses. Like he, and they have a physical combat. They, they battle hand to hand. He, he is, you know, barely holding on. And finally God says, you're my boy and saves him, um, which is, 
he doesn't win through through his own cleverness. He wins because God shines a light on a sword and says this one, um, or so the poet tells us, which is which is just interesting. I'm like, imagine imagine that battle, and like imagine the the amazing warrior power of someone who who is fighting like that. And I mean, I can't even imagine it myself when I'm 43. You know, I'm like. That would be a lot <laughs> like MMA combat. Like it would be a lot for me to go into an MMA fight with a, with an 18 year old guy, but she does, you know, and she does because of her pain and her grief. And she, and also because he comes in and attacks her by the way. So that's like often not really pointed at in the translations, but like he, she doesn't attack him. She takes one guy who isn't him and the guy it's, it's sort of, justified it's the law of the time like she gets feud law she goes in gets one guy takes him that's all she's doing and uh that's legal so in terms of like illegal is what beowulf does he goes against feud rule law goes and sneaks into her lair comes down and attacks her in her home which i think also at this point in the history of the world we have a lot of history of understanding that dynamic for women um and the sort of dynamic of transgression across thresholds, not just for women, for, for people, well, anybody who's not a cis straight white man, basically, has has that dynamic as part of their understanding of the world. And um, it's, uh, I wanted to point at that as in this translation so that we got a sense of the peril that she is in when she fights. Mm. And, you know, you don't, you don't um, diminish the gruesomeness of the story. There's plenty of blood and, you know, juiciness, if you like. Um, but an, another thing that I found really distinctive in your translation um, is the humor. I know it's there in the original. I know there are moments of it. But you, you really draw it out, in, in, not just with your linguistic choices, although that's there too. But, you know, there's, there's almost an inherent humor in, in the rhythms, the flow, the dialogues, the interactions, you know, Things like that. one of my favorite lines, you know, besides it was lunchtime. <laughs> I'm glad nobody else has ever said that. And that line I put in, it's a joke, obviously. I put it in because it's funny. And yeah. in the original, the, um, yeah, it's, they go to, they go and they're waiting for Beowulf to come up from underneath the mirror where he's fighting with Grendel's mother and they don't know what's going on under the water. All these warriors are waiting. And then the warriors of Hrothgar's court just go home. They're old men and they're hungry. Um, which is like, so it's so perfect. They leave and Beowulf's warriors stay and they're like, is he alive? I don't know. We'll just wait a little while longer. So it's like a full life and death situation and half the, half the group goes home. <laughs> yeah, for a lunch break. <laughs> it's like, it's quite filmic really. <laughs> You're listening to the Newcastle Writers' Festival Story to You podcast series. My name is Magdalena Ball, and I'm speaking with Maria Devana Headley about her new translation of Beowulf. Okay. Sorry, can we go back to the humor? Um, because I, I just love it. It's all through the book. The, alliterati the alliterations are funny. Um, there's so much in this book that, that really made me chuckle. I mean, it's partially because of thinking about it as an oral text. I was like, okay we're talking about a room full of drunk people in the audience listening and no storyteller would do this without jokes. Like you, you have to have jokes in a story like this. And there, I think the jokes are there. I think that sometimes they're just read as um, little 
aberrations in in some translations that it's like oh this is a dignified society but i think this is a society that's full of all the things human society has always been full of i mean we are always joking around and there's dirty jokes and there's like um you know making and in the sort of braggadocio there's there are jokes in the sort of battles of braggarts and we we get I think we don't always in translation understand that these are jokes, but I think that they're jokes. I think, I think we're supposed to be listening to Beowulf bragging and thinking, Oh, really? Hmm. And you know, he's full on. And I just sort of ramped that up a little bit so that we could get a sense of how it would feel if someone we knew was doing that. <laughs> and, you know, on the one hand, you're like, he's full on. He really is. But on the other hand, his storytelling is like bombastic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit more about the monsters because um, I know you're drawn to them and, you know, Grendel is, is clearly um, the, the key monster, but there's also the dragon who's pretty monstrous. Um, yeah. Talk to me about the dragon. She's, she, she almost seems, um, she comes pretty late in the piece when you're kind of all, already relaxed. Many years have gone by and, uh, you know, and here's this dragon. I mean, there's this amazing thing that happens, which is that we have the first two battles, Beowulf is teenage Beowulf, and then, and he wins. He wins, he wins, he wins. And then we get like a one line that says 50 years passed. That's right. And now Beowulf is king. And over the course of the next third of the poem, we get a sense, we understand how that happened. But we, um, but we don't get the 50 years right then. We just get 50 years past, Beowulf is king, and a dragon appears. Oh no. And um, some people think that that section of the poem was grafted on from another source, like that it doesn't belong there. I think it does belong there. Um, and I tried to make that really clear in this translation that the dragon is the result of earlier problems. Like he, he's so convinced that he is God's gift. Like he's, he's so convinced of it that a dragon shows up to say, mm, maybe not, oopsie. And the dragon is, uh, the dragon, he and the dragon kill each other, but it's, um, it's he, God doesn't bless him in this battle. He goes in without the right preparation. He goes in just convinced that he's going to win. Um, even though he's an old man at this point, he's 70, he's, he's the old king now, he's Hrothgar. So it's, um, I think the dragon is just really interesting. The dragon, the parts regarding the dragon are beautiful. Like the dragon comes in and she has, she's found this horde that's been buried by a dead civilization and group, uh, the last survivor of a dying group of people. Um, they've been killed in a battle. They've all fought each other to the death and he's the last guy. So he buries all their stuff and it's cursed and it's buried and he sings a song of woe. And it's amazing. Like the song is amazing. We get all of that. We get the whole history of the horde that the dragon has found. And then the dragon curls around it and stays there for 300 years. And she is comfortable and it is her house. Um, and I made the dragon, I gave the dragon she, her pronouns. Um, that's something that, I don't know if anyone else has done that. It's um, lots of people give the dragon male pronouns, which mm -hmm. I think is never really remarked upon. Um, the dragon is is neutral um, in the original, but the but the she her pronouns in my for my purpose were to connect the dragon to the rest of the story as well, mm -hmm. to connect the dragon to Grendel's mother, to connect the dragon to the women who are not justly served throughout the course of the poem. I was like, okay, here's an example of a woman who's 
place is broken into by a thief. What happens is that a thief breaks in and steals a goblet and uh, the dragon wakes up and someone has been near her while she slept and she, and it's something has been stolen and she can see the footprints. And, you know, I just think that there's a different context for that. Um, if the dragon is part of the continuum of, of women in the poem, as opposed to just being uh, sort of not discussed or being a masculine dragon. Um, and you can kind of understand the rage because the rage has been building through the poem <laughs> of like women being ill-served and you really get a sense of it. So I was like, okay, let's understand the dragon's anger about this, this breaking and entering a little better. Let's understand why she's still mad. So she comes out and she's like, sets everything on fire. And Beowulf says, well, okay, I'm gonna go and, and kill her. I'm just gonna go by myself. I always go by myself, I'm the man. And he goes with his guys, but his guys are supposed to just sit and watch and learn. Um, He's the which man. They don't. Yeah, yep, and they don't. They all but one go running into the forest because they're freaked out because it's a big, dangerous, scary battle and they don't want to be part of it. And one guy is like, oh, he's my kinsman. I, I can't just leave him to die. I'm going to go in and fight with Beowulf. So that's how Beowulf kills the dragon is that his, his kinsman comes and helps. Um, but it's, and the dragon, meanwhile, gets some poison spit into Beowulf and Beowulf dies. But it's, it's a very, I think it's, it's moving because though Beowulf doesn't really realize what has gone wrong here, he doesn't acknowledge it. He wants to hold the, he wants to hold the gold. Like he, his last thing that he requests is that all the gold be brought to him so that he can see it and know what he died for, which is wrong. That is not the right choice. Okay. You, you didn't. You didn't want to like say have any sense about the history of anything that happened here. No, you just want to snuggle some gold because you're also a dragon. Um, yes, and you know the, the line between dragon and human, and between between questionable hoarder and good hoarder is very thin. <laughs> and throughout the poem, we're discussing the hoarding of, of resources, and it's being it's always being discussed. So this is this was another opportunity to discuss it, and it's and it's in the original poem. Yeah, wonderful. Absolutely wonderful um, connection. And I, I guess it doesn't take much, does it? Like it's it's there, it's really subtle. You can recast it one way or recast it another way by, I don't know, choice of pronouns, choice of words, just the subtle way that the rhythms form. Mm -hmm. did, did that occur to you as you were translating that, you know, if I do X, which is very small, this is, a, you know, this is the way in which, this is the lens in which I'll be creating this. And if I do why, which is another, you know, small choice. These choices are so important, aren't they? They are. And I just, I think I had never, because I had never translated anything before, except for little tiny things. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really understand what, what the process is like. And it's just really like that. Like in terms of particularly translating old English, where it's a language where you have many choices for many of the words and the choices don't all agree with each other. They're like a wide spectrum of choice. Um, so with a liter literal translation of Beowulf, sometimes you'll have like line after line of possible translations, all kind of in just stacked together. So you're like, okay, I didn't choose one here, are the possibilities and I'll translate them as though they were in the poem that way. Um, choose your own adventure. <laughs> It's a choose your own adventure. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And it's so the, the act of translation is for a text like this is, I mean, to put it very, <laughs> to minimize it radically, but I'm going to say it is like, I don't know if you have Mad Libs in Australia, but it's like 
it's like a, yeah, it's like a Mad Libs game where you're like, okay, if I add this word, what happens to the rest of the meaning of this sentence? If I if I use this definition, that's like, and all the definitions are debated and there's scholarship around around many different versions of this. But um, but for me, I was also I was really purposefully looking to shine light on certain parts of the text so that we could feel like we were there um, in the moment of this story, sitting there listening to this and understanding. Because I think that the the feeling of listening to a poem like this is, um, you have the feeling of it being poetry because it's full of rhyme and alliteration. In this translation, it is especially full of rhyme. Um, and the Old English is full of alliteration. And so you know that it's not real language. You know that it's not um, naturalistic speech. But you also get the sense of, um, of getting it. And I wanted us to have that feeling of getting it, which I think that people in an audience for this poem in the original audiences felt they would they would have gotten it. They're, the poet is saying, you know that battle. I'm not even going to go into it. And they knew. Whereas we are like, okay, we don't know that battle. That's a battle that we have never heard of. Um, which is one of the, also the challenges of translating this poem. Because there are references to things that we don't even know what they're talking about. And we, we have been trying for the past 200 years to figure it out because it's a puzzle. Mm, wonderful. Yes, why there's 688 or whatever there are of translations of this work. Yeah. Um, I guess it's daunting at the same time as it's freeing because <laughs> if you, mm -hmm. when there's so many, you know, you maybe the pressure's not so high to be the definitive one. I mean, that's the glory of it. There, Yeah, there are so many. And my advice for people reading this one is always, Read, read more than one, like read, read three translations and, and look at them next to each other. They're all really different from each other. And it's an interesting thing to think about the way that we translate across cultures now. I mean, the way that we translate across languages now, it's, it's the same, you know, it's the same situation where someone is filtering through. So translators actually need to be recognized more than they are. And, um, and we tend to not realize that there's tr a translator in between but in, in anything that we're reading that was originally in a language that isn't our language, there was a translator between. And that translator was making all the same kinds of choices, <laughs> which I think, you know, in a, in a living language is a different thing than in a dead language, but it's still, it's still that process. They've been some pretty interesting um, and maybe funky adaptations as well. Um, like, how do you feel about, you know, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't mention it, but, uh, you know, the, the film um, that Neil Gaiman did that <laughs> turns, turns Grendel's mother into a temptress. <laughs> and and yeah. the, the dragon, which is a really strange twist. I, I think I prefer I, yours, but it's interesting. I mean, I, Neil is a friend of mine. So Neil and I have talked about this. We, um, you know, he 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 was interested in what Grant, what I'm sorry, what Beowulf was doing underwater for so long, <laughs> and in, that is an interesting question. Like, what is he doing down there for so long? He's just <laughs> hanging out with Grendel's mother. He doesn't bring her body up, like, um, and that's it. You know, that's there. That's that's absolutely there for the taking. Like, he does not bring her body up. He brings up Grendel's head instead, um, and says he's killed her. But we never get any proof that he has. So that's. Um, you know, I mean, I, I like the audacity, it's audacity to go in that direction. And, you know, mine is audacious in a different direction. But mm -hmm. it's like, I think all of us have made choices that are have more or less like eyes on them. Um, 
so, you know, I mean, it's interesting. I, I think that the, the temptress aspect of that came in production, not necessarily in the script. It was the, the super seductive naked Angelina Jolie painted gold situation was not, um, was not in the script <laughs> and surprise. Um, but, and I, I think that's a very questionable. I mean, when I saw it and I remember seeing that film it, very, I was really excited. I was like, ooh, that dragon looks really good. Because in the trailer, there was a really good looking dragon. Um, and I was excited. And I'm always excited to see a good looking dragon, I have to say. Um, but then when I, perversely, when, when I saw the film, it was in the theater and the Angelina Jolie coming up out of the water painted gold with high heels on her feet that are stuck to her feet like a Barbie doll. Um, the, there was a problem, there was a glitch in the film. And so that got stuck on the screen and it just hung there for about 10 minutes shaking and <laughs> it was I don't know maybe maybe part of why I ended up doing this is that I was scarred by Barbie Angelina on the screen <laughs> like I, I wanted a warrior who didn't have to also be sexy you know I wanted a warrior who could just be gritty and angry and grief-stricken and not also beautiful at the same time you know I wanted I wanted to have that part of the spectrum seen. That's, I think that's fair. <laughs> um, so now that you've translated one old English text, <laughs> um, and I imagine the learning curve is, you know, is huge, but now you've got some, like, some real, like, a, a real store of, of wisdom about it. Are you tempted to do more? You know, Cademan's hymn? <laughs> Maybe the prose. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I'm so, there's such beautiful stuff, in, and it's a small there's not that much of it. Like yeah. the old English, the pile of old English text is like half of it is just lists. And then the part that's poetry is little. Um, so I don't know. I mean, other people are also doing work like this on, on things that they have deep expertise. And I happen to have weird expertise because of the mirror wife in Beowulf itself. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, it got me very interested in translating. If I find a text that I'm like, hello, you speak to me, then probably yes, and I'll figure it out, you know, whatever it might be. But there's not another text like this in, uh, in the Old English. So now I'm really interested in epic poetry. I'm interested in like the sort of the epics that weren't necessarily categorized as epics. I'm interested in digging around and seeing what is out there in that category because like the idea of telling your your hero stories. I mean, I'm always interested in the hero monster stories. I'm interested in deconstructing them and, and fucking with them and seeing what's inside of them. Mm. And uh, that's, that tends to be what I'm interested in across the board. So I'm like, you know, there are a lot of those. Um, and, and it would require new, new expertise, but I like new expertise. <laughs> Novelist that I am, I'm always like diving headlong into a new, completely different thing. So it's, it's one of the weird things. Like I stuff everything to my short-term memory and write a novel as fast as I can. And then, and then it comes out again. This is a rare experience to spend like the past seven years or so working on Beowulf stuff because normally it's like three years and then I purge it from my memory bank and jump into another period and another corner of whatever the world has contained and what the world might contain. So we'll see, <laughs> I don't know. I can't wait. I'm sure I'm not the only one who'll be watching with bated breath to see what comes <laughs> next. <laughs> so, Maria, we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining me today. Listeners, we've been discussing Maria Devana Headley's new translation of Beowulf. 
um, published in Australia in 2021 by Scri that seems some scary year anyway <laughs> by Scribe as part of the Newcastle Writers Festival's Story to You series, which will continue until the end of May. Episodes will be available every Wednesday morning. Please follow the Newcastle Writers Festival on Facebook and Instagram for regular updates. And the 2021 festival will be held. Um, hopefully in person from September 24th to 26th. Listeners are welcome to make donations via the festival's website to support, support the event, which has been hit hard by COVID. So bye for now. Thank you so much. to you.